welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Just before we get started, just a reminder to visit jasonpereira.ca to sign up for my newsletter, where you'll receive notifications of all future podcasts, blog posts, and other goings on. And now, on to today's show. Today on the show, I have Melanie Russell of Kalex Valuations. Melanie is a business valuator, which is a bit self-explanatory. She basically values businesses and does so to meet their needs of a range of client issues, including M&A and family law issues. And with that, here's my interview with Melanie. Hello, Melanie. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking your quarantine time to talk to us about the exciting world of valuations. My pleasure. It's very exciting, that world of valuations. <laughs> well, it can be. So Melanie Russell of uh, Calix Valuations, tell us about what it is you do. So I am, a by background, a, a legacy CA, CPA, uh, that specialized in the area of valuations. So valuations, or businesses' assets, are used for various purposes, whether it's trying to sell a business, whether it's trying to transition to the next generation or to employees, whether it is a dispute and you're having a fight with the other shareholders or partners, or a family law matter where you have to determine what, what the values are. Um, so many different purposes of, of valuations. And so we calculate the value then under the assumption that everyone will pay for an asset, depending on what uh, the market conditions are, what the future cash flows look like, what the risks of the particular asset are. And we're, it's basically a finance type of approach. So what would you, Excellent. what would someone pay? So, I mean, when you really think about it, and I've had this conversation on several occasions, several people, it's actually a little bit bonkers that most business owners, their largest asset tends to be their business in itself. And from day to day, they have no true idea of what the market's going to pay for that. Maybe they got some idea from transactions that have happened elsewhere, but they typically get in their head some sort of number they feel it's worth based on what it's worth to them. I always say that this conversation usually goes one of two ways, uh, depending on the context of why we're doing it. There's the, when they want to sell, it's the trying to explain to them that not everybody's baby is pretty <laughs> and that uh, maybe that's not, you know, the highest valuation you're imagining your head's not doable. And then the, the counterpoint to that is when you're, when you're in the middle of a divorce, no one wants to have a super high valuation because uh, that's the case. And I literally had, I literally had uh, some, some business owners say, well, if she wants to buy it for that or vice versa, he wants to buy it for that, he can buy it for that because <laughs> I, yeah, so it's a little bit contextual. So let's talk about the process of valuation first and foremost. So when you go in, what's the process look like? What do you ask for? What do you get involved with? What is it you're looking to find from business owners in order to slap a price tag on this thing? Okay, so it can, if you're acting off, most of the time I'm acting as an independent valuator. And so my value add is telling owners, telling business owners or asset owners what someone might pay based on logical, rational thinking. So looking at the baby is the baby pretty, not pretty, uh, needs some improvement, needs dressing up a little bit. But if you would put it on the market, what would someone pay? So my role is to act, generally is to act independently as if I was acting on the part of a purchaser and advising a purchaser and saying, okay, here's the asset. Let, I need to get an understanding of it. I need to understand what drives the cash flows, 
what kind of risks are related to that business, who they compete with, what the customer base is, what the supply chain looks like, what the balance sheet looks like. So really getting a, I'll call it diligence, doing a decent level of diligence to try to get an understanding of what the future cash flows might be and what the risks of achieving those future cash flows might be. And as if I would be going to a potential purchaser and saying, here, I've done my work. I think you should be offering $10 million or $5 or just walk away. So the general so, process is collecting a bunch of information and looking, trying to do some due diligence and understanding the market overall. So basically taking in income statements, balance sheets, uh, other information surrounding the business, looking at the industry. And then once you have all that, I mean, you mentioned cash flows already. Is the primary method that you're utilizing discounted cash flow analysis? Or are you looking at like comparable sales, uh, different multiples? Like what different type of metrics or foundational inputs can you use to come up with a number? Okay, interesting. So there are lots of items and documents that will be requested. And just to throw a bit of a loop into this, there are different levels of valuation assurance, just like there's uh-huh. different levels of due diligence someone can do. So you can engage a valuator to do what I'll call a quick and dirty, which is a lower level valuation or a medium level or a high level. So depending on depending what level someone needs, that'll dictate how much due diligence and how many documents are obtained. Now, in terms of what you do with those documents and in terms of the approaches that you're asking, the general theory is that cash is what drives investors, right? So if I'm going to look at, you or I are going to look at buying something in a rational, logical market condition, we're going to be looking at what is the cash flow we're going to generate as the owner going forward. So I'd say discounted cash flow is a very common approach. Now, the reality is for a lot of smaller, mid-sized businesses, they don't necessarily have the ability to put projections together or budgets, and it's probably all in the owner's head, but putting it down on paper may be a bit of a challenge. So you often look, as you said, look at past results to try to use that as a guide to what might happen in the future. So evaluators often look at past results, but in theory, if the past results are not going to happen again, we will we should throw those out uh, because we're really looking at the future. And obviously, as you said, if we can get market comps, wonderful. But the reality in most if you're valuing a business or you're valuing a particular intangible asset, piece of software or something, the ability to find a comparable asset is is pretty challenging. It's not like looking at a couple of houses within a certain area and seeing a whole bunch of recent sales and just adjust because the roof of one was done recently and wasn't in the other and one has a pool, one doesn't. It's much more challenging on the comparable approach for um, small and mid-sized businesses. How much of this has to do with the industry that they're in? I mean, we we see, you know, just absurd valuations, for example, in the software industry compared to say, you know, someone manufacturing a widget. When they say absurd, just relatively speaking, multiples you see even public markets are just enormously different. How how much of that has an impact? That's an excellent point. And that is that's one of the big issues for valuators. Valuation is ultimately a finance-driven study, and we often look to the public markets to say, what are all these investors doing? Because it's such a deep market and there's much information, as opposed to looking at privately held businesses. The problem is there's a lot of differences between the small, mid-sized businesses and the public companies. So one mm-hmm. of the differences in the multiples, the obvious one is going to be that if I buy private company A, I can't just sell it the next day. If all of a sudden I say, oops, I want, I need some money to pay off the debt because the pandemic hit and, and we have some challenges. I can't, I have to get some liquidity. It could mm-hmm. be a very, very long process. So one of the big differences between public and 
private company valuations is the, the liquidity or marketability aspect of getting, getting access to your money. But yeah, back to your question about industries. Yes, industries have a huge, the particular industry has a big impact. And often you'll see transactions in one particular company and at one particular industry, and they are absurdly high, um, whereas mm-hmm. another industry isn't. But if purchasers are out there in that in that industry paying those absurd multiples, then it's hard to rationalize that one particular business should be a lot different than what's going on in that, what activity is going on in that business industry. Have you found, like, to your experience that, like, you've had cases where people have anchored on maybe the wrong industry? I mean, I'll use, for example, like, enterprise software, SaaS software, like, you're talking, like, 10x multiples of revenue, not not cash flow. I've had bricks and mortar people I've talked to who, like, I don't know, I think it's worth that, right? I'm just, like wow, unless you figured out how to deliver that service online, <laughs> repeatable with no human beings, I don't know that that's right. Have you found that that's been, as especially as business media has expanded, has that been a bigger issue going forward? It is. And, and often that's because lim- you have limited information and you hear that yeah. someone so sold their business for X. And you say, well, my business will be is like that or will be like that in five years for sure. No problem. Just wait. But that may not be the reality because someone buying a business now is going to assess the, the business as it is right now, not, not going to say in five years. The other factor is that you can have a business where someone comes in and looks at it and says, this is a nice tuck in or this is a great strategic purchase and I'm going to pay a little bit more for it. So there's also those differences. So every every transaction, every purchaser in theory will pay something different. So speaking of that, let's talk about different types of purchasers, right? You'll have some, you know, some ones I'll throw out there. You'll have a strategic buyer who maybe wants to basically buy that business because, hey, it's completely scalable. They can just take the client list, add it to their business, take no overhead. Or it'll be strategic in that it's a complementary or same business. So they're buying more market share or they're going to sell the, the same customers they have both sides of the product. And then you have kind of like investors outside of that. So can you talk to how these people, these different types look at valuation differently? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when I went through valuation courses, the standard thought was, well, if there's only one special purchaser, no one's going, that person is not going to add or, or offer anything extra over and above the sort of financial or intrinsic value. The reality is when you have purchasers and vendors who have full information or they all do their due diligence, they will have, the vendors may have an idea of what the purchasers are going to do. And with that asset, they might have some insight into some extra benefits realized. The other thing, you know, years ago when I went through the the program, the idea was that financial investors would not pay more than someone who, a competitor, for example, who might be able mm-hmm. to say, just bring in that customer list and not have any additional costs. Whereas you or I buying as a financial investor, we'd have those, that bottom line cost. So we're not going to achieve as much. But with a lot of the financial engineering over the past 10 years, that reduced cost of capital to financial investors, sophisticated financial purchasers, that's a synergy that can be more valuable or at least as valuable as some of the operational synergies that a competitor might. might So they come in and they have access to capital at rates like slow, low single digit because they've got large profitable enterprises or large stack of cash. Meanwhile, you know, the manufacturer, whoever it is, maybe borrowing at rates of 10 to 15%, just being able to provide capital to that business increases the net and that cash flow strategically, right? So, I mean, yeah, that that can be incredibly powerful if you can if you can get you know. And that simple example was a it's a twenty percent cost of carry versus versus the previous. 
I can see how that would magnify the the gain. So interesting. So that's a developing trend. Then you see you see more more capital based, uh, sophisticated purchases versus just the strategic ones. Yeah, and you saw I saw that. That's really what private equity is all about, right? That mm-hmm. they can borrow at cheaper rates and leverage it up. And everybody knows that leverage is a great thing to a certain point. But once you over lever, you can get in trouble. And when things like COVID happen, as many are finding out now, yes. Exactly. So leverage is not a be all and end all. You still have to be very careful with it. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the key factors that lend themselves to higher valuations versus lower? I mean, cash, the bottom line cash flow absolutely makes perfect sense. The bigger that is, the bigger the multiple is going to be. And the sustainability of that cash flow. Okay. So things like, so, I mean, one of the things that, you know, interestingly enough, every SaaS software company I see try to play is they try to get you to sign up for two-year contracts, right? Because recurring revenue is king, right? I mean, not having to make a sale every month definitely helps. So that's that's clearly one that helps the sustainability. What other factors, basically, if we're going to reverse engineer this and try to get the highest value for any business, what do you want to see to say, yes, not just not just the cash flow, this is a solid buy for, for someone? Well, I think ultimately it all leads to the cash flow. So if you peel away the layers of the onion of each particular business you're looking at to understand what drives that cash flow and draw and determines the sustainability, that's the important part. So for some companies, as you said, it's going to be customer contracts, customer relationships, long-term customer relationships. For some companies, it's going to be the employees that are there or the, the high-level employees or the skilled labor. Some, it's going to be the supply chain, having access to good product at a reasonable price or product, competitive product that you can reduce the, the input costs. And of course, another aspect is what's, what does the balance sheet look like? So when you get companies that have strong balance sheets versus weaker balance sheets, you're going to have a little bit different risk assessment on those. And of course, a pandemic hitting for a company that's a little bit on the weak side, on the balance sheet side, really shows that increased risk as opposed to someone that had, or a company that had retained some capital, working capital, kept something in the bank just to make sure that they could cover a few months, Uh six months of costs. So talking about the cash flows in particular, I mean, one of the things I often, especially in my industry, because I've done some M&A work uh, in my industry, but I think it's not that uncommon. There seems to be the business owners when asked about, okay, so how much do you make? The offer response is, well, the business ended up making this and I took it all, right? There's a real kind of lack of understanding that there's really a normalized salary that should really go into the calculation as to how much a business makes. And that, as I've said to them, there's there's your return for working in the business and there's your return for earning the business and you're lumping them into the same thing. How much education or pushback do you get on that concept when you're dealing with with valuations? Yeah, that's a very good point. So For a lot of business owners, who cares? It's take what I need, take what I can based on how the company is done, take what my accountant says is a good mix between dividends and salaries. But one of the the things we look at, evaluators always look at is, as I said, what is the future cash flow going to be? And it's future cash flow to the investor. So if you or I are going to buy shares, the theory is that we buy shares in a company, we're going to pay everybody a fair salary, uh, we'll pay all of our costs, And then whatever is left at the end of the day becomes our return on capital. So the presumption is you're going to, even if the owner manager stays around with some equity or some management contract, you're going to have to pay that owner manager or owner managers reasonable salary to keep them motivated and keep 
whatever contacts help the transition over. And it's it's really important. So if you have a business that the owner has been taking nothing because he's been he or she has been putting money back into the company to keep it going, when you or I look at that on behalf of behalf of ourselves or a potential purchaser, we're going to say, well, gee, that owner manager is not going to pay take nothing forever. So we're going to have to carve out some of that cash flow that we're projecting to pay that owner manager or a replacement to do whatever they're doing. So it's really, it's probably the one of the most significant and, and most sensitive components of the valuation. And I find some owner managers will say, you know, I know my buddy in this company is paying his senior people X, or he used to work at a big public company competitor for why. So they might have some metrics, but if you come through the entrepreneurial ranks, start your own business, you probably don't have a great idea of what your market value for work performed as opposed to building the business. And that's a really important thing to separate out. Yeah. On a similar note, I mean, two similar notes there. One, basically business owners will typically run qualified expenses through the business as well, right? So that is negative, a negative impact to the cash flows of the business. How do you go about normalizing those expenses back into the cash flow? That's a great point. So as you said, this contrast between your bias, whether the someone is trying to sell and get the highest price possible or someone is divorcing and they want to get the lowest amount on their uh, net family property statement as possible, you may have a different story. But in theory, what, what you want to do is cleanse the f- historical operating results or normalize them, as we call, for all the remuneration and all the unusual non-recurring related party stuff. And then say, once you've cleansed that, now going forward, what do we actually have to pay someone to do what it is needed to keep this business running and keep it going as it's going? So it's an interesting area because for, for a couple of reasons. One is there can be some challenges when you're trying to sell the business and you were telling the, the potential purchasers that, yeah, we basically run a bunch of stuff through, but trust me, trust me here. You know, it's 10,000 a year, 100,000, whatever it is. Trust me. I lied to CRA, but I wouldn't lie to you. I promise. Trust but verify is what I say. <laughs> exactly. So you have to be careful with that. And, and what I always advise someone who's thinking of selling a business is clean that stuff up long before you get to the point of having to disclose your books to your purchasers. Because it just, it they may ultimately believe you, but they may also say this, the risk here is just not worth it. Either I'm going to walk or I'm going to pay a lot less or I'll buy shares, for example, and you're going to lose your lifetime capital gains exemption, because I can't trust that CRA is not going to be uh, coming back and knocking on my door at some point. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen it on the other side where where potential sellers have have turned around and said, well, I mean, this this deal is not worth it to us because I mean, they've factored in our salaries, but geez, what about all the other stuff we run through here? It's like, well, you've been running it through there. The the business isn't making that. They don't know that it's going to make that afterwards. Exactly. Uh, Some purchasers will get, uh, depending on the size of the deal, they might get something like a quality of earnings report from from evaluator. And that's some of the things that are taken into consideration. And it requires objective evidence to prove that, yes, you these are things that you have been charging through and are really a return to equity holders as opposed to business expenses. The other thing that comes to mind, and it's a similar vein, how much, like, especially, I guess, maybe in newer companies, do you get like pushback on valuations because they say things like, no, that's not valuing the time I put in to get it here, right? Like the concept of sweat equity. All too often on Shark Tank or Dragon's Den, people come up there with this concept, well, I invested this much time and I forewent this much salary. And the typical response is, that was your choice. Like, I'm not paying for that. Like, how much do you get pushback on that where people say, well, she's based on what I've done, it's, it's not worth it. 
Yeah, it's a it's a big issue, and it it's sort of the vision between the person that's married, that entrepreneur that's built this up and has put all this sweat equity. It this may be his or her favorite child. They may have many children, but this is the favorite child. So, and why can't anyone else? see that, right? So their vision might not be the same as a potential purchaser's vision. And that's the whole, that's the problem. And so when you're at that point, that's the reality is it's probably more worthwhile for you to continue on building the business. So then you can get to the point where you can prove to potential purchasers or investors that, yeah, see, my vision was right. I'm not just telling a nice story that you're not going to be willing to put your money behind. So I'm curious too, how much do you get involved in the conversation around working capital? Because a lot of times people will say, okay, well, business is, is worth whatever, but hey, there's like $250,000 in cash in the business. Yeah, I'm taking it with me, failing to realize that's not necessarily an option. <laughs> right. That is number one issue. So in terms of post-deal disputes, that is probably the hottest contested issue. And what we're talking about here is, you know, in the closing In a deal, they say, well, we're going to close August 31st. And at that date, you have to have 200,000 working capital, or you have to have a 1.5 to 1 working capital ratio. Just to clarify, working capital on it's basically cash and receivables minus your payables, essentially, is what we're looking at. So basically, the money that you have or is coming to you minus the money that is obligated to go out already. Right. Explanation. So the owner says, you know, run this business. If you, the purchaser to kind of hit the ground running as soon as you take this over and close on August 31st, all you need is 1.5 to 1 or 200,000 cap working capital, whatever it is. And so therefore on closing, if working capital is actually 300,000 and we put in 200,000 to the purchase and sale agreement, you have to give me an extra 100,000 above the purchase price. Or if it's only 100,000 on close because I pulled out money or what or yep. collections didn't come in, then I have purchase prices reduced by 100,000. So that is a very, valuations where always, we always have to pay. What is that market or optimal working capital level? Because it, that can also be a very big number. And you get into first issues of what's, what is really the right number or, or ratio, but then how do you measure that? So mm-hmm. I've been involved in disputes where you, you really get into accounting issues. So you say work, working capital sounds easy, you know, as you said. Current assets minus current liabilities. Okay. Yep. Then there are different accounting policies that say what's a current asset and what's a current yeah. inventory might may or may not count towards it. There's all kinds of things. And then also like what do you do about receivables that are, you know, past say 120 days? Are they counted or not? Like how do you factor in, you know, what's collectible, what's not? Hence hence why there's typically adjustment periods and and escrow amounts and and clawbacks. Right. Or earnouts. And I guess one of the earnouts. things Earnouts is a great, in theory, it's a great bridge where you say the purchaser and vendor can't come to an agreement. They have different views on the value and they say, the vendor says, I really think it's worth 5 million. And the purchaser says, no, I really think it's four. But if these things happen, I'll give you an extra million, however you define that. So that kind of gets the risk out of the transaction. There's a lot of other issues related to it, but you can deal with those kind of things by saying in the future, if this happens, come what may, if it happens, then I'll give you, you'll get an extra million, 200,000, whatever it is. So there's ways to do that. And I think sort of the way deals have been going lately in the pandemic, that there's been a lot more of that. Let's do more earnouts because we just can't measure this risk. It's just too big of a, too big of a threshold. Yeah, I get that. So speaking of the pandemic, uh, there's a bunch of things that are going to, I mean, 
your business, I think, is about to flourish for two reasons. One great, one not so great. Well, I think it's both not so great. The first is divorce, unfortunately, because I'm already seeing statistics on an increasing spike there. So that's going to lead to a greater number of valuation needs. The other one in general is tax planning and estate freezes. And I had, we've had previous episodes where we discussed estate freezes and passing on future growth in the next generation. But let's talk about why it makes sense now versus a little bit more than it did a couple months ago, depending on what business you're in. Right. Well, the idea of a freeze is to say, let's fix the value. And in mm-hmm. general, when people want, when one generation wants to freeze, they're trying to transfer the future value over to the next generation or the next group that's going to take over. And the higher you can freeze it at, the more you're locking in in value and you're going to be able to get, it'll affect the future tax bill. So if a current owner can freeze at a lower amount, then the tax bill on, unfortunately, on death will, will be a lot lower. So in events like this would create uncertainty and obviously concern about future cash flows and risk for a lot of businesses, the value's probably have gone down for many businesses. For some businesses, they will have gone up. Some will have maintained value. So it'll be very, it's going to be very industry, company, situation specific and date specific. So most of the time, it's better to freeze at a lower amount. And and I think it's safe for a lot of industries to say that that values have gone down. Well, if you're in travel or hospitality, I'm willing to bet that no one's going to raise a stink about that one. No, exactly. But you also have to be very careful because you have to have something to support it. As as you know, you can't just go to CRA and say, well, pandemic hit and now my value, the company's value has gone in half. Sorry, owner of Zoom, that's not true. <laughs> you know, that's the extreme example, right? I mean, yeah, you know, you, you haven't a shutdown for, for a month or two. And then picking up right where you left off is not an argument that your valuation needs to be reduced by, you know, two out of 12. It's, it's a one-year blip versus all the, all the cash flows look perfectly fine thereafter. However, you being, case in point, you're running a travel agency. There is short of a very big swing back in the opposite direction. You're probably going to be looking at an impaired valuation. So it makes perfect sense. And uh, again, I think CRA might agree with us on that one. They might. might. They, I never they, know what them. They, they might. I, I mean, and they're not looking at things right now, but definitely you just need to be be aware that at some point they will be looking at looking as at as I always say, like, you know, it's interesting people are like, oh, I don't need the valuation kind of just come up with a number. It's just like, so you can do whatever you want to do. That's not the issue. The issue is when they come knocking at the door, if you're like, well, it's there was an interview with Donald Trump or, or it was a testimony with Donald Trump where he talked about his own personal value. And he said at one point, it's like, you know, feelings, how I feel on the day. You know, if you're basically, if you feel good about the business and you decide to take a high number, that's just not acceptable. Having a independent evaluator such as yourself only helps build the case that you did all the right steps, that the, the valuation is honest, it's true. And I'm willing to bet that CRA gets to know who their valuators are over time. So <laughs> if you constantly lend, they constantly are auditing your stuff, they might just say, well, it's enough of these. Like, can we get your file? and see everyone you've audited because clearly something's going on here. Right. Um, but one thing you have to remember is that if you're doing something for tax purposes, if you're doing it now during the pandemic, yep. CRA is not going to be looking at it for a while. So they're no. going to have the benefit of hindsight. And for good or bad, we don't nobody knows, but it's That's much true. things seem much more obvious when you get there than when you're in the midst of it. So just be aware of that that it has to be sort of founded on good support, good evidence, yeah. um, because it will be looked at with hindsight in mind. Yeah. So in some cases, it actually makes sense to not necessarily do that in the doldrums of what's going on right now, but to maybe wait a little bit. If there's some question as to the degree of the bounce back you're going to have once this is all over, which I'm sure there's some question everywhere, but it's probably, it's going to mean basically maybe waiting a little bit. But overall, still a good time to be talking to your professionals about doing an estate freeze if that was already on your radar. 
So thank you very much for taking the time to explain all this, Melanie. Uh, where can people find you? They can either reach me by phone at 416-488-9590, extension 225, or my email, Melanie, M-E-L-A-N-I-E, at Kalex Valuations, which is K-A-L-E-X-V-A-L-U-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. So that was my interview with Melanie Russell of Kellogg's Valuations. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you found it informative. And we'll from here go on to figure out how to maximize cash flow in order to maximize enterprise valuation. As always, this has been Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners and I'm your host, Jason Pereira. If you like enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.